Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 224. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. Richard Ryerson here. Thanks, as always, to tuning into the show. This is the show where we examine, study, talk about leadership because it's central to everything that we do in every aspect of our life. Everything literally rises and falls with leadership, so it's in our interest to learn all we can, how to become better leaders, and that's what this show is dedicated to do. We bring people on the show from CEOs, faith-based leaders, military leaders, everyday folks like you and I talking about the concept of leadership because the reality is, regardless of the position or title, somebody right now is looking to you for influence and guidance because that is a truth that we must deal with. It's in our interest to learn all we can about leadership, and hopefully those of leadership can help you in that journey. So happy to all the emails that I've been getting from the listeners out there. I, I love hearing from you where you're at in your leadership journey. Reach out to me at richard at doseofleadership.com. Let me know where you're at in your leadership journey, or you can reach out onto my contact page at doseofleadership.com. And hey, I'm also offering free coaching sessions if you've ever thought about having your own leadership coach. I have introductory sessions to see what it's like. To uh, It's a special one-on-one coaching session for free. You can sign up. Send me the email at the same address, richard at doseofleadership.com or the contact page. Let me know that you'd be interested in a free personal leadership coaching session with me. In that session, we'll create a crystal clear vision for the results you want for your life and your leadership journey, for the way that you'd like to interact with your family, with your team, with your organization, and for the kind of people you'd like to surround yourself in your life, because it is about surrounding yourself with like-minded people. I'll help you uncover the hidden challenges that may be sabotaging your success with leadership, team building, and personal growth. And I guarantee you, you're going to leave this session renewed, re-energized, and able to create a more powerful, purpose-driven life that will allow you to get significant things done both personally and professionally. And again, it's a free complimentary session with me. Just reach out to me and let me know. And I'll send you a personal booking link where you can book a time that fits for you. And we can sit down for 30 minutes to an hour. Sometimes it goes to an hour. And uh, we'll talk about your leadership growth. Okay, great show today. Michael Singer, you've heard me say it before. I like to have... CEOs on the show. They're hard to get for obvious reasons. They're always so busy. And uh, Michael Singer from Strategic Partners Incorporated reached out to me and uh, his folks thought it would be good to have on the show. And I didn't know much about him. And in 20 years ago this month, this July, Michael Singer formed Strategic Partners Incorporated. It's currently the market share leader in the manufacturing and marketing of medical uniforms, medical footwear, and school uniforms under the brands as Cherokee, Dickies, Heart Soul, Code Happy, Infinity, and Disney. And he also, they found out uh, 70% of healthcare workers were concerned about the spread of bacteria, so they made the decision to commit the company to developing a new line of medical apparel called Certainty. I think we talk a little bit about that, but what's fun about talking with Michael, we hear about his journey, how he came, you know, graduating from USC, having, you know, starting a business, starting a publishing uh, a magazine for colleges. And we talk a lot about um, 
his leadership journey. And what was amazing to me that one of his personal mentors was Warren Bennis, and I did not know that. And it was just a fasting to me that uh, at an early age in college, he worked one-on-one with Warren Bennis as a mentor. Um, and uh, just a fascinating story. And we talk about alignment and clarity and working in the business environment. There's a lot of great leadership nuggets in this conversation. I really think you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Michael Singer from Strategic Partners Incorporated on Dose of Leadership. Well, Michael, what an honor to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership, my friend. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. It's, it's really my honor, and it's great to be on the show with you. You know, when your company reached out to me, and I love talking with CEOs. Um, they're hard to get for obvious reasons because uh, they're so busy. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this. But let's you know, take me back to that. How did you get started or passionate about the idea of leadership in the first place? Well, I guess, you know, I started in, in junior high school, um, and, and I ran for student body president and was fortunate enough to get that opportunity and, and really enjoyed, you know, having the opportunity to, to do that. I did it again in high school, and I did it again in college. And I just, I guess I just really love the opportunity to work with people and to help you know, get things done and to build a team and try and create an environment where people can exercise and express their best talent. Is it something you kind of gravitated towards or were you intentional about it? I mean, it's, it's rare to find somebody in junior high kind of seeking out leadership positions. It was, was it something you just kind of instinctively was drawn to or did you like say intentionally, I want to be a leader? You know, I think it's just, happened naturally. I wasn't so conscious. I didn't know this till later, but it was funny. My, my kindergarten teacher, who I still keep in touch with, she's a wonderful woman, and she told my mom that she used to, when she used to leave the class, she used to like put me in charge. Oh, really? My mom later, I learned it, that she thought I was a born leader. I, I didn't know any of that, but I just, I just really enjoyed people, and um, I, I found it interesting and challenging. So becoming the entrepreneur then, I mean, what was kind of, I don't know, if you take, go back to the, that kind of age frame, you're going through the high school and the college years, how, was the entrepreneurial vision and journey always there too? I mean, how did that, how did the entrepreneurial bug kind of come into play? Well, I think it, it, um, it was interesting. My, my dad, when I was, my dad was pretty innovative. He was, he was very entrepreneurial. Um, and I remember you know, him him really encouraging me. He had read that the building a vocabulary was very strong vocabulary was a very important factor for success. And I remember as a kid, he used to, you know, for to get our allowance, we used to have to get these um Johnson O'Connor Research Foundation put out these vocabulary builders and we had to study and I actually had to teach vocabulary to my sibling. So I, I would get my allowance from that and then I would take that allowance, I'd get on my bike, I'd ride a couple blocks over to a coin store, and I would use the money and buy silver coins. Hmm. And then some of the other money, I went and I bought um, Jolly Rancher candy, and then I used to sell those to the kids at school. So <laughs> I think that was, it was probably some of that entrepreneurial, you know, uh, drive in me that came from my dad, who was also very entrepreneurial, and, and probably my his his mother, and on the other side, my, my grandfather was very entrepreneurial. He had and one of the founders of Republic Pictures. So I guess it's kind of, uh, you know, what I what I grew up with. You know, it's always an interesting, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who had that kind of modeling and molding. You know, and there's always a question, just like in leadership, are you 
can someone be taught to be an entrepreneur? Can someone be taught to be a leader? I mean, I obviously believe people can be taught elements of each. And certainly some people are naturally born into leadership and entrepreneurship roles. But man, you cannot deny the fact that if you're exposed to that environment at a young age, it just becomes second nature because that's all you know, right? And that's what, kind of what it sounds like with you, with your father. Yes, it's, it seems to be that way. You know, I think of friends who, you know, I have a friend who's a dentist and his daughter going towards his dentistry. Another one is a lawyer and, you know, their their kids happen to go into law. So I think they're, you're not locked in, but I think there's certain tendencies based on what you learn and what you get comfortable with. I have three kids who are headed towards, you know, business degrees and are interested in, in entrepreneurship as well. I want them to do whatever makes them happy, but I think there's a natural gravitation to things that we know and we're familiar with that seem, seem comfortable to us. But I know for me, you know, I, I, when I was at, in school at USC, I was there at a time where there were some guys who had developed this Men of USC calendar that was very successful. And then shortly thereafter, there was, a, you know, the song by, by Frank Zappa's daughter, Moon Unit Zappa, Valley right. Girls. Valley Girls, yeah. uh, It came in, it became this, this uh, fad that swept across the country. The song was you know, huge. And so I was an orientation advisor and I, I was hearing, you know, they would introduce me at the luncheon as Mike Singer from Encino. And it was very bizarre to me that I would get this crowd of 30 or 40 students who were from across the country. And all they wanted to know about was what were the Valley girls like? So when orientation ended that summer, I knew there was an opportunity. And I talked to a good friend of mine who was a talented graphic designer and photographer, and we decided to create this Valley Girls calendar. But that was really my first big entrepreneurial experience, right. and, and I think what I, I learned in that process was how much I didn't know, and it led me towards wanting to get a, a business education and entrepreneurship at USC, and, and I was just you know, so fortunate to have that experience. It's such a phenomenal program. It was today. It's one of the top, if not the top program in the country. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that, you, so here you are, I'm always fascinated by this because you found this opportunity to like, hey, you know, it just, for whatever reason, you had your eyes and mind open to an opportunity. You're seeing this idea that you got a calendar for men, let's do a Valley Girls calendar, you know, and here it is the early 80s. What was the motivation behind that? Again, it's, it's when you look back on that, it was kind of a contemplative experience or looking back on it. What was driving you to do that? Was it money? Was it just the the idea to create something? Was it to attract, you know, girls' dates? What was it? What was the motivating factor? Well, I think it was, it was, I think it was just the entrepreneurial drive. I mean, some of it was wanting to make money, but that wasn't really the core focus of it. Right. It was just seeing, seeing an opportunity, seeing a market sort of combining, you know, what I had seen work over there with something that was working here. What I didn't know at the time, <laughs> I didn't find out till much later is that really I was nine or ten months behind because at that point calendars were sold in, you know, in February. This was 1983. So in February of 1982, all the bookstores and, and <laughs> gift stores bought their calendars or booked their calendars. So right. when I started this in, you know, September, uh, thinking, wow, I've got, you know, four or five months to get this done before 1983 starts. In fact, I was way late and I was in trouble because at first nobody wanted to buy. And actually, it was my dad who got 
the head of B. Dalton. He called the CEO, uh, CEO's office of B. Dalton. I'll never, never forget this. I got a call from him at home. He was working for, I think, E.F. Hutton at the time or one of the brokerage firms. And he said, hey, Michael, I've got CEO. I'm on, we're, we're on hold. The CEO of B. Dalton Books is going to be coming on the line. Here's your chance. You know, tell him why he should be buying this calendar. So, you know, I was pretty much surprised and on the spot, but it was my big opportunity because otherwise this calendar was going to be a big loss. <laughs> That's exciting. And so you graduate, and then any other kind of ventures after before graduating, I guess, but then the other big kind of um, venture was launching the national uh, newspaper, right, for college students. And um, Yeah, that, that came, came a little later. You know, my dad had had a tumor, in, in his in his pituitary and had surgery and had radiation and it damaged some of his his um, his decision making process and so he you know he ended up not 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 working at that point and I had to sort of figure out how I was going to pay for the rest of my college and get through so I ended up taking a job working with a gentleman who was a He's a small business consultant, and this is just after PCs had come out, and, and I had learned how to do spreadsheets, you know, at the Greif Center for Entrepreneurship, and um, I was doing business plans and spreadsheets for him. And then I left after I graduated for Europe, believing that I had a job with him when I came back. And there had just been a recession, and he, he was uh, from Austria. He had number of his business clients couldn't pay their bills. He ended up taking over their real estate, but then he had to work through selling it. So I came back from Europe, spent all the money I had thinking I had a job, and in fact, I didn't have a job. Oh, man. So, um, yeah, that was, you know, that was scramble time. But I, I happened to call a professor that I had, a wonderful man who's a mentor of mine, Warren Dennis at USC. Right. And, you know, asked him, told him what you know, what was going on, and said, hey, do you have any ideas for me? And he had a referral. There was a woman who was working at USC, uh, was getting her doctorate, and her name was Ann Graham Erringer, and her her uh, husband at the time was interested in producing some kind of a publication for college students. So I got together with him, and, and um, we became partners. I was a small partner in the venture, but I did the research, and developed a prototype and a concept for it and went out and wrote the business plan and got Anheuser-Busch and American Express and General Motors and AT&T ultimately to be our advertisers. And we launched this national publication for college students. And So, yeah, I kind of remember that magazine. You might say, well, it seemed like it was still being published not too long ago. What happened? You eventually got separated from that, right? So kind of bring me to that point. What I, happened with you? I did. You know, um, the magazine was a was an interesting concept. What we did was we established a partnership between ourselves and many of the college, 400 college newspapers from across the country. So we hired four editors who were just graduating, and they came and did a one-year internship with us. And they would read all these newspapers, and we would pull the best articles, photographs, and cartoons, reprint them into a national edition, give the student the byline, the name of their college newspaper, the name of their university. We would print the publication, and we would send it out to the 400 papers across the country in, in volume, and they would insert it. We would pay to have it inserted into the college newspapers. So what happened was the business was a challenging business because every time you went to press, between printing, the pre-production, the printing, the shipping, and the paying for insertion, 
we were spending upwards of a quarter of a million dollars an issue. Wow. So my business plan called for a lot of advertising and few issues. And I, I, I really felt we should have four issues and a maximum of six. Well, just when we were launching, my partner um, hired someone who had come from the Herald Examiner as my boss, and she had a lot of, of um, editorial experience and pitched herself very well, but the fact was she had very little business experience. Um, was, she was very uh, accomplished as an editor and had quite a career and was much better at the politics than I was, but... Her concept, coming out of a daily newspaper, the Herald Examiner, was that if you only publish four issues a year, no one would know, none of the advertisers would know you existed, and, and you just wouldn't be able to build enough presence. So instead of four issues, she advocated coming out of the gate with eight issues and quickly moving to 12. Wow. I thought that was an absolute disaster. And unfortunately, she was able to sort of position it with, the, the main owner, my boss, you know, the, my partner, that I just had sour grapes because I wasn't running things anymore and that I was getting in the way of the progress. And so they went ahead, they pushed to eight issues, six issues and eight issues, and it, and it literally just broke the company, unfortunately. And so the publication was sold I think a couple of times, but, and I'm not sure if it's still in existence, but it was in existence, you know, not too long ago last I saw it. Yeah, I can't. I haven't, I haven't. But for me, but for, yeah, for me, what happened was I ended up getting fired. Right. And I was, I had gotten, I got engaged, got bought a condominium, went on my honeymoon, came back and got fired. And so again, I sort of found myself at an inopportunistic time to be, you know, surprised <laughs> with, right. with not, you know, not having work and. And so I had to figure it out from there. So you go to Cherokee at that point, right? And you become a sales administrator for them? Yeah, I try to buy this publication. They're not willing to sell it. I get a great offer at Cherokee, and I end up taking a job working for the president as national sales administrator. And I do that for a year. And then I'm helping, one of the things I'm doing is helping to to look at this medical uniform business that's not performing very well and to you know, help help to get that business on track because they were thinking of closing it. And shortly thereafter, um, the gentleman who was running the business was no longer there, and they turned to me and asked me to run the business. So here you are trying to build a team, and you actually had some great success out of that. What At this point, are you realizing that you've got some management leadership skills? What's contributing to your success now that you can look back at that? Well, I think... I think in that particular opportunity, um, I think it was really about listening. You know, the business I felt had a lot of potential. I spent a lot of time interviewing the sales force, talking to customers, understanding the market, and understanding what we were doing wrong and what we needed to do to, to really grow that business. And so it was an interesting time because when I got to Cherokee and I took over the business, Cherokee was doing about $240 million in sales, and, and, you know, this business was doing $3 million. And by the time I bought it in 1995, Cherokee, was, after two Chapter 11 bankruptcies, was doing $50 million, and we were $17 million of that 50 hmm. At that point, Cherokee wanted to become a licensing company. We were a manufacturing and, and wholesale distribution company. And so it, it really made sense for us to spin that company out from Cherokee and 
I, I made them an offer, raised money, and bought the business and formed this new company, Strategic Partners, which bought the assets of that business, the medical uniform business that I was running. Right. So you said the kind of key to the success, I mean, without getting into too much of the, the business kind of nitty-gritty, did you hire a lot of people? Did you focus on finding the right people? I mean, what was it from a leadership perspective? What contributed to the success? Yeah, we. I think we had to we had to get the right people in place because when I started it, it was me and half of a cut. When I took it over, I should say, it was me and half of a customer service representative that that we were borrowing and sharing with another division. So yes, I had to build a team, and and between it over in 1990 and the purchase in 95 at that point my team was not only running our own business but we were running much of the operations for the rest of the company as well and helping them to wind down that operation and, and transition into a licensing company so finding the right people was critical what is your leadership style i mean the fact that you had warren bennis as a mentor at such a young age how I just can't imagine having that blessing of um, understanding leadership. Did you did you realize how special he was on the leadership front when you from an early early age? Yeah. Oh, oh yes. You know, when I was at USC, I think it was my sophomore year. I had heard it was a I think it was an article in the in the Daily Trojan that was talking about this amazing guy Warren Bennis who was coming to USC, and I was. I was so excited about it. Um, I was, I remember getting on my bike and he was actually giving a lecture uh, in one of the classrooms prior to a USC football game. And that was the first time I heard him speak. And, and then I got involved in student government and had the opportunity to, to run the student Senate there. And, and I got to know him more through that, through that experience. But he, he was, he would, he would have a course. I would sign up for that course but inevitably, the course would get canceled every semester because he was, you know, interviewing, flying around the country. He was interviewing CEOs. He was doing speaking engagements. He was writing his book, uh, Leaders, the Strategies for Taking Charge. And so then my last semester, when I, I went to see him, his class got canceled. And I said, you know, Dr. Bennis, I, I want to take your class, but it's been canceled. He looked at me and he said, Mike, don't worry about it. There's always next semester. <laughs> and I said, no, uh, for me, this is my last semester. So he kind of looks me up and down, and he's trying to, you know, gauge how serious I am. And he says, so you're, you're pretty serious about this, aren't you? It's, he says, this is, I said, yeah, I've signed up for your class three times, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm dead serious about this. Says, you know, are you willing to really work at it? And I said, absolutely. So he said, well, hey, what we'll do. We'll do a directed research course for graduate credit. I'm going to assign you a book to read once a week. You're going to read the book. You're going to write a paper. And then we're going to sit down and, and go through the book and the paper. Oh, my so God. So we did that all semester long. And it was, you know, it was the most work I had, because I had my other classes, too. But it was the most rewarding experience. I learned so much in that process. and. Oh my God! That's uh, he, he was just an extraordinary man to be with, and, and you know, we read books like Leadership by James McGregor Burns. We read uh, My Years with General Motors by Alfred P. Sloan, and then in contrast, we read on a 
called On a Clear Day. You can see General Motors, which was John DeLorean's book, being critical of GM. We read The Power Broker by uh, Robert Moses, Robert Carroll, rather, about Robert Moses. Of course, we read Warren's book and some others. But it was just a phenomenal experience getting a chance to be with him. And we, we've remained close friends ever since. Man, that's an amazing story. Can you remember any anything kind of jump out at you as big takeaways from a leadership perspective that you've kind of applied to your life? You know, there's there's so many. Um, there's so many with Warren. You know, he, he, he was such an inspiration. I think one of the things that I remember him talking about, you know, and, and he, had, he had classes where he had well-known leaders come and speak. One that stuck with me was he was talking about Bob Zemeckis came to class and he was talking about all the movies he produced. And Warren asked him what was his favorite. And he said that he likes Forrest Gump the best. Hmm. And when Warren asked him why, he said his quote was, was, we we were all making the same movie. And it was he was talking about how everyone on that movie was aligned and how... You know, if you think about it, it's such an important concept because when when an organization isn't aligned, you've got all these people moving in different directions. But when everybody's making the same movie, you've got a group of people who are just totally focused. They know exactly where they're going, and they're working together to, to get there. So that was one of, of many things that really stuck with me. How do you think we Warren did- was was so... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, how do you how do you think we get that alignment? How do, how does that happen? Do you think? Well, I think it has to do it, it has to do a lot with clarity, clarity of vision, yeah, and clarity of communication and collaboration. You know, I think that the the leader has to know himself or herself very well, has to know the team, the talents of the team and has to create an environment where people feel comfortable to, to express their views and to express their talents. You know, it, it reminds me, actually, when I think of, I heard a story, and, and if, you, if you think of um, John F. Kennedy and what happened at the, the Bay of Pigs versus the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the Bay of Pigs, as we know, was an absolute disaster. The military had come to Kennedy, and they had said, you know, we've got this opportunity, we've got these rebels, we can go in and take over Cuba. And Kennedy ends up, you know, the cabinet ends up going with it, and it ends up being a huge disaster. So the way I heard the story was that Eisenhower then calls Kennedy up, the previous president, goes with him to lunch and says, let me ask you a question, how did this happen? We were pitched this multiple times by the military, and we said, no, no, no. What happened in your process that you said yes? And basically what happened is Kennedy went in the room and he sort of pitched the idea to his cabinet, and he said to everybody, so what do you think? And there was nobody there who was really willing to stand up, Mm -hmm. and people were a little hesitant. But the president was behind us, so I'm not sure I really want to fight it. And so he, so, so Eisenhower says to him, you know, I learned this from Alfred P. Sloan at General Motors, that if there is no disagreement, there is no decision. We cannot make a decision unless we have 
conflicting points of view. Yeah. So then when the Cuban Missile Crisis comes up, and the military comes in and tells Kennedy, we got to... You know, we've got these missiles being deployed, and they're going to be operational soon. We've got to attack and knock them out. Kennedy pulls in the diplomats, and they say, no, we think we should use diplomacy. So he says, all right, we're going to take the military guys. You guys are going to advocate for diplomacy, and the diplomats are going to advocate for military action. And, of course, the military guys come back and say, we really do believe in diplomacy, and, and that's what they did. And sure enough, what we didn't know, and we learned, you know, 50 years later when McNamara was visiting Castro, was that there were operational miss- missiles in the jungle that we didn't know about, and those guys were instructed to, sh- to fire if we attacked. Hmm. It was a good lesson. It's a lesson in collaboration. And so I learned a lot from that, and I try and create that environment where people collaborate, where I want to hear dissension. I want to hear different points of view. Disagreement is good. But the issue is, how do you shape that conflict as a leader? And that's, I think, the job of the leader, to shape the conflict. I love that. I love that phrase that you said. And it's a great example, too, a great historical example. I kind of forgot the fact that Eisenhower kind of pulled him aside. I forgot about that little piece, but that is such a great example. And you said so many great things there. Um, I want to just kind of rehash for the sake of the listeners, like the clarity and the alignment piece. Those two things are so critical, like you said. And then as you summed up there, it's like, how do you create that environment as the leader to create that conflict, healthy conflict, right? Not conflict for conflict's sake, but conflict to make sure that we're getting the best possible result based on the situation that we're faced with. That's interesting. Yeah, you've got to have, you've got to have people who have a, have an opinion, but can check their ego in at the door, right? Yeah, People right. who are strong enough to be willing to be wrong, to advocate, but to also listen and consider. And and that's sometimes, you know, it's, it's sometimes challenging, but most of the time we can get there if we, if we check our egos at the door and we take our emotions out of it and we try and, and deal on an intellectual fact-based level rather than just the emotional level. Yeah, check the egos at the door, treat everybody with respect, tolerate disrespect from nobody, but keep that place where it's okay to have that sort of healthy conflict and disagreement. I always equate it to flying a plane. Like when I'm in the cockpit, I got to have that same environment, right? So it's it's your ob- it's, I always like to say it's your obligation to challenge me. It's not your right to challenge me. It's your obligation to, to challenge me, you know, because it's your pink body in this plane too and we can't hit the mountain, right? Don't let me land with my gear up. I don't care. How smart, stupid, aloof, grumpy, or what you think I am, don't let me land with my gear up, right? You're obligated. Yes. So true, right? Because when they research a lot of the crashes, most of the time they find human error. That's right. And I know there was a, I forget which culture, but there was a, there was a country that had a very high incidence. Maybe it was one of the uh, Asian countries that had a much higher incidence of plane crashes. And they found in that culture that it was very... It was very um, difficult and disrespectful to to contradict your superior. But it's not about, you know, that's when you have, you've got to have that disagreement. Someone has to, and you're giving them, I love what you do there, because you're giving them the, the obligation, the responsibility that it's their job to speak up, it's their job to, to do it. Yeah, because, I mean, you know it is, just for the sake, because... As the CEO, you have a tremendous amount of positional authority just based on your title. And 
and to educate people to understand that it's not about positional authority. It doesn't matter. You know, you got to, you know, someone at the top, like you're at the top of a company, you got to be intentional about making sure you are approachable, right? And how do you do that? You know, how do you create that clarity, that alignment, you're approachable, people feel comfortable to speak up. And obviously there's plenty of opportunities where you can, when somebody does and by expectation and example showing, Hey, I appreciate you not letting me crash in the mountain, you know? And so I don't know. I love that you said that though. That was some, go ahead. Oh, thanks. And it's, it's an interesting topic too, because some, Sometimes people think that the CEO has all the power. They can just come to a CEO, and the CEO should be able to make something happen. But it's sometimes difficult, even as the CEO. You have to work through. You have to work through your team. You can't just pontificate to say this is going to happen. You've right. got to be able to work through issues and get people aligned. So you can imagine, too, if the CEO has challenges working down through the organization, how much challenge people have coming up the organization, especially if the environment isn't conducive to listening, to collaboration, to cooperation. And if people don't feel, you know, sometimes in an organization, they may speak up once or twice, but nothing happens. And so they don't speak up again because they feel defeated. And I think this is something really important, too, for all of us, because sometimes we're leaders Sometimes we're followers. If we think of ourselves and our role and how busy we are, and that there are things that fall through the cracks, if we're in an organization, no matter what our role is, just because someone doesn't respond once or twice, if we believe passionately about something, we've got to keep trying to make it happen. And that's that's something I really try and stress as a leader, too, that, that there is friction. It's not intentional friction. It's not necessarily that someone opposing your idea. It may just be that there's too much going on, and it's just not rising at that moment to the highest priority level. But it doesn't mean we give up on it. We've got to keep, you know, keep driving to make things happen. Yeah, the tenacity has to be an inherent, an inherent requirement, too. I love that. You're absolutely right. You can't give up. And um, I think, you know, you said something really critical there, I think, because a lot of times we think in organizations or particularly the bigger we get that um, there can't be chaos or friction. But the reality is that it, it's always there. It just exists. Um, so I would rather see people it – it kind of drives me crazy to see people, especially in large organizations, try to do everything we can to eliminate friction and chaos and I kind of come to it from a mindset it's like, look, the, the chaos and the friction, the fire is always going to be there. I'm not going to try to eliminate it. I'm just going to try to exploit it. What? How do you react when you hear that? Well, I think I think that if sometimes people um, they shy away from conflict. You know, sometimes sometimes people. Well, you can take a leader. You take the people involved, right? Sometimes the the, the leader. Sometimes it gets too emotional. Sometimes people take things personally. Right. Sometimes different people have different skill sets at expressing their feelings or expressing their disappointment. And even though they may not intend it to be personal or intended to be overly negative, you know, how thick of a skin does the person on the receiving side have? And can they sort of, you know, can they get through that? Now, if they can't, sometimes people just perceive situations wrong. They perceive they're being personally attacked, and they're not. 
And I think sometimes, even today, I had to say to someone, hey, I really think you misread the room there. That was not a personal attack. Actually, that was really productive, and I want you to come back in, hold back into this, and, and re-engage. And re-engage realizing that this is an important issue, and it's not a personal issue. I, you know, you're striking me, I, and I've never worked with you, but I'm curious to see, do you feel that the bulk of your time should be spent on communicating the possibility, the vision of how things can be? Or do you think it's developing other leaders, training people in theory to take your job? I mean, what is it? What takes up most of your time? Or what do you think is the most important as the CEO of SBI? Well, I think it's combinations of the two, right? You're always, you know, they're always... People in the organization hopefully have been with you a very long time, and then they're new people, and the new people have to get acclimated to the culture and 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 have to get engaged and learn the business, and 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 so I think it's a combination, you know, of, of looking at the environment, you know, comparing comparing your current strategy and your current plan to what's happening in the market, and getting that right information coming into you and your team and being able to, to synthesize and analyze it and come up with the right strategies. So that's part of it. Then there's the part of how are you going to communicate that? Of course, uh, our friends at GE used to say, and I think it was a very effective, you got to communicate things to get it through. you got to communicate it six times in six different ways. And sometimes we think we communicate something once and people get it. And the reality is, is there's so much noise and so much clutter that they don't. And so you have to really, you have to keep communicating it. And, and then you have to develop people. So you have to do all those things. Right. And, and I think the challenge for most of us who are running companies is really how we manage time, how we deploy ourselves, and, and how we take temperature of getting the right kind of feedback where people are giving us honest feedback on how we're doing and, and hopefully we can make adjustments along the way and keep getting better, keep learning. You know, I try to spend a, a fair amount of my time reading, um, going to, I go to the TED conference every year. I do a week at Harvard Business School every year. So I'm trying to, you know, keep developing and, and keeping up. How do you prioritize? I think that's probably the hardest thing for me. Um, and I wish I could tell you I have a, a, a great system. You know, I have a, I think for me it's more intuitive than anything else. I mean, some people are really great at, at building lists and, and things like that. I'm not great at that. I tend to send myself uh, reminders and email messages, and, and um, I have a general, you know, a general sense of the things that I'm trying to achieve. But I, I have... Um, I think it's it's always that that part's always a challenge, sure, especially yeah. when you're running a, a complex organization with a lot of people. What is the culture that if you if, you know in your dream and your vision, what is the culture you're trying to create? Well, I have to, I look at our mission, you know, as a business. You know, we're we're trying to, you know, the, the people we admire, the people we we look at and and really uh, respect tremendously are healthcare workers because these. These folks are, it's incredible what they do. They are managing their own lives and their own families. Many of them have their own children, husband, um, or other family members to, to take care of. 
they are the go-to people, you know, for their friends and families when something goes wrong. So they're constantly being called on for advice and information. And then they go to work, and many of them work, you know, multiple days in a row, 12-hour shifts. That's very common for healthcare workers to work 12-hour shifts. And they have... They never know what's coming at them next. You know, they, they're in a very complex environment where people are having very serious health issues. You've got the patient. You've got their families. You've got a team of, of medical people you're dealing with. And so our job is really to try and, and create products and services that benefit healthcare workers, that make their lives easier, that make them look great, feel great, give them functionality, um, you know, so that their garments support them. And, and most recently, you know, we've been looking at how do we really add to that equation because we have great brands, we have great fabrications, we have great styling details, we have great fit, great comfort. And then we said, you know, how can we take it even a step further? And our latest focus has been on building antimicrobial technology into the fabric to add that additional layer of protection to the garment. And so that's when you came up with, or this, is it called certainty? Is that right? Is that the technology that, that uh, you created? Or am I saying yeah, that right? it's, yeah. it's called certainty. We have certainty technology, which is adds a layer of antimicrobial protection to the fabric. And then we have certainty plus, which builds upon that antimicrobial protection, adds fluid-resistant properties to the fabric so that when you have a spill, it will resist the spill and the fluid will run off the garment. You know, what I find really refreshing in listening to your talk about that is that you come from a place where you're not just trying to create a product that looks good. I mean, you didn't even need to talk about the product. You talked about how you want to... Um, it comes out of a deep reverence and respect for the healthcare worker. And I think, I don't know, I know that's, a, I can just imagine that, and I don't, I'm not familiar with your company being around your culture, but I just can see that you're communicating that, you're trying to communicate that, what you just told me throughout the entire organization. Is that a correct assessment? It is. You know, our company is called Strategic Partners. And, and our philosophy is to really be a great partner, to do what we do best and to partner with others that do best. So, for example, on the licensing side of our business, we partner with Williamson Dickey that has the best workwear brand in the world, the Dickey's brand. Sure. We partner with Disney and other companies that have character licensing brands. So we're bringing kind of a warmer, friendly environment to pediatrics those families and those patients because it's really a scary environment for kids who are coming in to medicine. You know, on the retail side, we are a manufacturer, designer, manufacturer, and wholesaler of medical uniforms. But we have incredible retail partners who do so much to actually engage with the medical community on a day-to-day basis and service their needs and every local market across the United States. And these people that we work with are incredible. We've got a tremendous partnership with them. On the manufacturing side, we work with fabric mills. We work with sewing factories around the world. We work with technology ingredient brands that provide us, you know, great ingredients. So we have to do what we do best. We've got to be a great partner, and we've got to partner with people who do what they do best. 
I don't know, man, I'm just listening to you and I, I love your, um, I don't know, I can see how everything that comes from you from your leadership style is about adding value to other people. Um, I don't know if you consciously or intentionally think that, but if I could sum up your leadership style, it's about adding value. Would you, is that how, how do you f- react to that? You know, I think that's what it is, because none of us is as smart as all of us. So what we try and do is, is collaborate. We try and listen. Uh, we try and unleash talent. We try and apply thoughtful, good governance to our business and good decision-making. And I think those things are, are, those are the key principles we believe in. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely get that sense. Yeah. You know, I don't know. What do you think some of the biggest leadership challenges that businesses are faced with these days? Well, I think that, that finding, finding in this environment, you know, we're, we're back to having a very robust economy, you know, it wasn't that long ago where the economy was not robust and so many people were out of work. But today we're, we're nearing a, an environment where we're much closer to full employment. So I think, you know, finding good people um, who, who, you know, you can add all the time, that's going to be challenging for a lot of companies. I think that, you know, many companies, we fortunately have been growing very fast, but I think, you know, the the economy in this period had been growing, you know, steadily but pretty slowly. So adding market share was a challenge. I think companies that are doing international business today, when we look at what's happening in, in the recent past with the strength of the dollar, that's making U.S. products more more expensive overseas. So international business is challenging. Our products, you know, are now becoming more expensive around the world. We do business in about sixty-five countries. And so you have to be, you know, even more innovative to continue the growth rate that you want to achieve outside of the United States. But I think the, you know, the biggest challenge for for all companies is to create environments where people feel empowered, where people are learning, where people see a great path to their own personal development and the expression of their talents. That's the biggest challenge. And if you can have people who, you know, spend so much of their time, so much of their day and their life is spent at work. You want that experience to be challenging, exciting, rewarding, and you want people to come away feeling that, you know, they're doing important work and that their work and their life has a purpose and that they're able to contribute in a meaningful way to the organization's success. Man, that's music to my ears. I love that. Um I'm just impressed with with that philosophy. I think if more companies had that, we would be in much better place. Again, saying it and believing it is one thing. Doing it, as you know, it's easy to understand, difficult to put into place because of the courage, the authenticity, finding the right people, all that things. But I love everything you said there. It's so true, and it's refreshing uh, to hear. Thanks so much, Richard. You know, as we wrap up here, I'm always curious about who people's um, who their heroes are, who who they. Um, you'll look up to if you could invite five people to a, a, a dinner where you could have the ultimate conversation who would those five people be and, and why well i think you know for me um i sort of divided into two categories right there there because i think you can find amazing inspiration from people that you meet in your life and and people who um who you read about sure and there's so many that I would tell you, you know, I talked about Warren Bennis, 
uh, he would be my first person I would invite to uh, to a dinner. I happen to adore uh, my kindergarten teacher, who I mentioned before, named oh, Cindy yeah. Bean, and and Cindy, she just changed so many lives. She she looked for what was special, and she recognized what was special in every person she met, and she made sure that they knew how special they were. So she knew how to make people feel great. She knew how to motivate them. She knew how to inspire them, and, and I'm pretty sure she was named Disney Teacher of the Year one year, so that's a, a good reason why. So she would be one. Um, I had a fantastic private equity partner, a gentleman named David Lobel, um, was my first private equity partner, and he had just such impressive people with leadership skills. I, I learned so much for him, from him, and one of the things he really was, one of the things he really taught me was he was so good at putting himself in the other person's shoes. So whenever he engaged, he really engaged from a dual point of view that wasn't just his own. So many times we're so focused on just our own point of view. And, and that was one of just many things I learned from him. And then, you know, just to jump to the other side, because I know I, I, I can't go into all the people, but... You know, um, I have to mention also, by the way, my kids. I have three kids. I have a 21-year-old daughter, Kayla, and my sons, Justin and Zachary. I actually would have them for sure because I learned so much from them all the time. But I think, you know, I like to read. Um, I didn't know that much about Ulysses S. Grant and Mark Twain, but I was recently reading a book um, called Grant and Twain, The Story of a Friendship that Changed America. It was fascinating book wow. to read about Grant and what an amazing leader he was and how he, you know, he achieved so much as a general. He's the only one who achieved the same rank that Washington achieved, won the Civil War, and then he became president. And later, he got caught in a mess because his son married into a family and they became sort of, you know, uh, involved in this Wall Street firm and the CEO of the firm. Uh, led them astray, they invested money, they borrowed money, and the firm went bankrupt. And Grant uh, made a decision that he was going to pay every penny back. And he ended up, shortly thereafter, getting cancer. He had cancer of the tongue and the throat, and, and he was dying. And, and Twain had met him and had pitched the idea of writing his memoirs, and Grant would have no part of it, but later he realized that he was broke and he knew he was dying, and how was he going to fix his family's finances, and how was he going to secure his family and his wife's future and pay back all these debts? So he decided to do his memoir. And people approached him, a large publishing organization, and they offered him a deal that was 10%. And when he was talking to Mark Twain, and they became friends about it, Mark Twain, who had, who had written... Uh, Huckleberry Finn, most of it, but had sat on the shelf for seven years uncomplete. After he spent time with Grant, he had the inspiration to finish that book, which he did, which became one of the great American novels. And his publisher was utilizing what was a new and novel technology or technique, which was a subscription technique, where you would get subscribers to subscribe to the book. You would wait till you had so many, you would make the book and then sell it. He went to Grant, and he said, you know, what's the deal they're offering? Or they're offering the 10% royalty. And he said to Grant, he would 
be Grant's publisher, and he would double the royalty and pay Grant 20%. And what was interesting about it is Twain really wasn't a publisher himself, but he was very much an opportunistic entrepreneur. He saw a big opportunity to publish Grant's book, but also to sort of leverage the subscription, uh, subscription model, which would also benefit his own book. And he ended up doing it, and it ended up being a huge success. Grant showed amazing courage through this process, fighting, he, you know, while he's dying of cancer, working, writing uh, 10,000 to 20,000 words a day. And he just made it. He wrote two volumes. They were like, I don't know, four or 500 pages each and completed it, you know, just before he died. But what was the most interesting thing about Twain was that he really looked, he wasn't just opportunistic, he looked to create a win-win. He created a win for himself, created a win for Grant. Um, Grant's book ended up being one of the greatest books, actually both of those books ended up being, you know, the greatest books of their of their time, both published in the same year. So that that really, uh, so I, w- I would have to have those two at the dinner. I would love to have uh, Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy at the dinner. There'd be so many others. Martin Luther King I would love to have at that dinner. I don't know. I couldn't limit it to just five. I know. It's, it very, too hard, it's very tough. But, man, I love that. I, I had no idea about the Grant and Twain connection. And I'm, I love both those guys, and I, I had no idea about that. That's very interesting to me. And what was amazing, yeah, what was amazing is two years after, after Grant died, uh, Twain was able to bring his wife. I think she ended up making a total of four hundred and fifty thousand dollars wow. royalty. And wow. of course, in those days, you know, they were set with that, and uh, so it was successful beyond, you know, beyond the wildest dreams of, of Grant and Twain at the time. Wow. Amazing, learn something new every day. I'm I'm just gonna check that out. That's um, I, I just had no idea. Yeah, it's that. a great read. Yeah. Well, gosh, Mike, what a pleasure. I've got so, I know my listeners have too. So many great insights and so many nuggets from the entrepreneur perspective, the the business CEO perspective, leadership perspective. It's been a true pleasure for me. How can people get in touch with you? Learn more about uh, strategic partners, or maybe even get in touch with you. Um, well, they can get in touch uh, through my email, which is msinger at strategicpartners.net. We are on Facebook. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. The corporate website, Strategic Partners. So there, there are many ways to get in touch with us. Well, Mike, I'll have links to all these on the show. Thank you for spending the time. As a you know, I know you're busy. You've got so many things to do. Thank you for taking the time and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge with here in Dose of Leadership. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's an honor and a pleasure. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.